Strange Stories UK here again. This is Series 4, Episode 24. I'm calling this one A Portsmouth Murder, Harold Lowens. This is another killing which I describe as a murder, which happened during World War II, and perhaps indicates that wartime increases the possibility of getting away with murder. This case also involves the pathologist Bernard Spilsbury, but not in such a positive light. Ava Furman worked as a cleaner for the John Barleycorn Public House on Commercial Road, Portsmouth. It was in the town centre. On the 29th of November 1943, Ava went as usual that morning at 8pm, sorry, 8am, to clean the pub. The landlady was a widow, Mrs Rose Ada Robinson. Ava rattled the letterbox but got no reply. She waited outside for almost an hour until she saw the man who lived next door to the pub at 520 Commercial Road, Mr William Stevens, who was a stoker in the Royal Navy. Ava explained the situation. Stevens jumped over his garden wall into that of the pub. Finding the back door open, he went through the pub entrance to let Ava in. He then searched the building and found the landlady, Mrs Robinson, lying on the floor of the back bedroom. Although he did not see her face, he assumed she was dead. He did not disturb anything but called the police. Harold and Rose Robinson had been the landlords of the John Barleycorn for many years. After Harold died... Rose ran the public house by herself. During the 1940s, Portsmouth had a high proportion of pubs in relation to the population. One pub per hundred people was a statistic quoted. The John Barleycorn was in the centre of town and was a typical local pub. And this being a time of war, there was a mixture of members of the armed forces using the pub. Rose must have been a strong character to run such a public house and she would have been well known in the area. The area around the John Barleycorn pub had been heavily bombed, Portsmouth being a naval port and being a targeted by the Luftwaffe. During 1940-44, to 44, Portsmouth suffered bombing and for periods of time there were raids every night, for weeks at a time. There were air raid shelters, such as tunnels cut into nearby Portsdown Hill and over a hundred trench shelters constructed in Portsmouth, along with some brick-built shelters. It is thought that Rose Robinson used an Anderson shelter that was constructed in the garden. Despite concerns from her family, Rose did not want to leave the pub and had all her valuables close to hand in case she had to leave the building in a hurry. Rose told her family that she had worked every day for so long she wouldn't know what to do with herself if she had to give up the pub. Late morning, 20th of November, Detective Sergeant Geoffrey Taylor arrived at the public house. This was in, within 20 minutes of receiving the call. He described how the body was lying on its back, clothed in a blue and white spotted dress drawn up over the body. Stockings and underwear were found near the body, and the black bedroom was described as in a state of some confusion with furniture being moved and drawers opened. It would have been a common thing at the time for people in towns and cities being bombed uh, 
to sleep in clothing in case they had to go to an air raid shelter quickly. The room appeared to be ransacked. There were open handbags and an empty purse. There were scattered loose change and a few banknotes which were found on the floor alongside unlit candles. The bed was in an untidy mess and there were some notes and coins among the sheets. There were also 12 elastic bands thought to have been used to keep money in bundles. These had been discarded on the bed. Ever since Portsmouth had been heavily bombed, Rose kept two handbags with her at all times, never letting them out of her sight. They were thought to contain about eight weeks' worth of pub takings in cash. At the scene of the crime, the blackout blind had been pulled from the window and a pane of window glass had been broken. On the windowsill outside of the broken window on the ground floor, a button and thread were found which were thought to have been torn from a coat or a jacket. It's thought that somebody had broken in through that window and left by unlocking the back door, although no fingerprints were found. Harry Hope Fisk was the doctor who had been called and examined the body. He was of the opinion that death was caused by asphyxia by manual strangulation. There were finger marks on the throat, a deep bruise on the right side of the voice box, probably made by the thumb, and three smaller lighter bruises in a line on the other side. This suggested that the right hand had been used. What was unusual was there were no curved fingernail impressions related to the strangulation. There were some scratches elsewhere on the neck. These were thought to have been made by Rose as she struggled with her attacker. Police suspected that a customer of the pub who had heard rumours of Rose Robinson with large amounts of money with her, under her bed as she slept, had broken into the pub to rob her. Keith Simpson, the pathologist, performed the autopsy on the 30th of November 1943 in the presence of three other medical doctors, including Harry Hope Fisk. He also examined the bedroom where the body was found. Simpson reported that the deceased was a well-preserved woman, although not strong, was capable of vigorous resistance. Simpson reported that her heart was not healthy, unlike the rest of her organs, and she had a pronounced limp due to an old leg fracture, causing her right leg to be shorter by almost an inch in comparison to the other. He reported no sign of disease. Simpson thought that Rose Robinson had stumbled onto her knees striking her face against the windowsill and was strangled while lying on her back by a person seated or kneeling across her trunk. Simpson thought that the medical findings were in keeping with Rose being surprised by an intruder, making her way hurriedly to the window to shout for help falling and striking the window frame while pulling down the blackout curtain. She was then dragged to the bed where she was strangled by the grip of a right hand by the person on top of her. Simpson put her death down as asphyxia by strangulation, saying that the state of her heart would have ruled out much of a struggle. Simpson agreeing with the findings of Harry Hope Fisk, who examined the body shortly after her death. Police went to question Harold Robinson. He was the youngest son of the murdered woman. 
Harold lived at 12 Colville Road, East Cosham. That's in Portsmouth. He was a hairdresser who had recently married Constance, or Connie, who was also a hairdresser. The police were interested in her son as he had recently bought a property and the police thought that he may have been in need of money. Harold told the police that he last saw his mother on Thursday the 18th of November. Harold went to view his mother's body the morning she was discovered. He explained to police that she would keep the money she took in the pub in bags and play the, pay the brewers, Black Brickwood's Brewery, each month in cash. He estimated that the pub would take about £50 a week and she would have about £400 with her in the bags in her bedroom, which she would secure in bundles with elastic bands. In one of her handbags she would keep coins and in the other banknotes. To give some context to these sums of money, a British soldier was being paid a little over £100 a year at this time and a pound would buy about 20 pints of beer. It's difficult to make money comparisons over time, but if a pint of beer today is about £5, I suppose the soldier's pay in today's monetary terms would be about £10,000 in comparison to beer. And of course the army gave the soldier bed and, broad, bed and broad, board. Although the police suspected Harold Robinson of killing his mother for money, this was also because he was a close family member, they would also have realised it must have been common knowledge that Rose kept money in the bedroom and she, uh, she would settle bills in cash. The police seemed to have no real leads in the case. The next person questioned was Frederick Welsh, who would also have been a suspect, being one of the last people to see Rose alive, or being the last person to see her alive, apart from her murderer. Frederick, who lived at 87 Knox Road, was a labourer and had known Rose Robinson and her husband for nearly 40 years. He was employed as a labourer, but helped at the pub. Welsh explained how he arrived at the pub at about 7pm on Sunday the 28th of November and stayed until the pub closed at about 10. At this time the two front doors were bolted. The back door was left open until about 10.15 to allow customers to finish their drinks and leave. Then the public house was secured for the night. Frederick helped clear away and left the pub at about 10.30 when Rose let him out. He said that he heard her bolt the door. Rose would then usually make herself a pot of tea and retire to bed about midnight. The John Bollycorn pub remained shut as the police continued their investigations. The investigation carried on without much progress. All known local criminals were pulled in by police and questioned and cleared. It seemed that the case was all but abandoned as insoluble. It had to be remembered this was a time of war and the police had to deal with a naval port that suffered heavy bombing with an itinerant population of armed forces and displaced people. Stating the obvious, the war was a boom time for criminals. It would have been a good time to commit a murder and get away with it. There was one neighbour, a Mrs Smitherman, who had been disturbed at 2am on the night of the murder by somebody in her house. 
She said that she lay in bed too scared to investigate. Three weeks later, on the 21st of December 1943, a police constable, Angus McLean, was on duty wearing plain clothes, accompanied by PC Baker. They followed a suspicious-looking man to the Anchor Cafe at 106 Waterloo Road, Lambeth, in London, where he was trying to sell a pair of shoes for 25 bob. The man was slight and scruffy, and something of a Dickensian-looking figure. I will post a photograph on the Facebook and Instagram sites. Ask yourself, would you buy a pair of used shoes from this man? Anyhow, they took him to the police box and cautioned him. They told the man they would take him to the police station for being in an awful possession of a pair of shoes. The man got angry, asking, why don't they just leave him alone? Police boxes were telephone kiosks that were used by the police on the beat and where the public could contact the police. The phone box is perhaps best known today as the TARDIS in Doctor Who. The man then started talking to PC McLean after he was cautioned and shown a warrant card. The man said that he was wanted by Scotland Yard for a more serious offence. The man said it was a trapdoor for him now. I'm supposing he meant the trapdoor on the gallows. The man continued that he was glad he was now caught. On the way to Kennington Police Station for further questioning, the man tried to give PC McLean a silver cigarette box, saying it was a Christmas present for him, and it would probably be the last Christmas present that he'll ever give. When at the police station, the man said that the shoes and the cigarette box had come from a job, a robbery, at St Albans, about 25 miles away. While being questioned, the man, who was called Harold Lowens, said he was glad to have been caught. He'd been through hell during the previous three weeks, that he'd been a bastard all of his life. He said further, I'm sorry for at the moment I'd done it. I hadn't slept since. It preyed on my mind. She must have had a weak heart, poor old girl. But you know what it is when a woman screams... Harold Lowens also told police officers that he had been they'd been just too late, as he had been with a woman. The woman had his case, and he told her to get away if it looked like he was going to be arrested by coppers. Police. The police who were with him did not think there'd been anybody with him, as they'd been observing him for some minutes. Detective Constable Herbert Salmon was on duty at Kennington Police Station, and again cautioned Lowens, and started to question him about the shoes and the cigarette box. Lowens started crying, and he said, I've done a job at Woking today. I've done dozens of jobs in the last week. I tied a woman to a bed at St Albans, hit her on the head with a torch and robbed her. I got the cigarette case and other things from her. I've done the other jobs at Mill Hill, Edgware, Wembley, in other places I can't remember. I know this is the end of the road for me now. I want to say I've done the murder job in Hampshire about 14 days ago. The woman who got all the notes in the case. DC Salmon said that Lowens then made a voluntary written statement witnessed by Detective William Clark. Lowens also told police that he had done a job each day to take his mind off of the killing. 
Lowens wrote in his statement that he was a labourer, aged 47, and he lived at the Winston Hotel, Germain Street. This is very unlikely, as it was a very fashionable street in London, and Lowens did not seem to fit the sort of person that would have lived at a hotel in this location. Lowens said that at the end of November he went to Portsmouth on successive days and had been drinking in pubs. He had been at the John Barleycorn public house talking to another drinker in the bar and he was told that the landlady kept about £2,000 in the pub. Lowen said that night he would thought about it and when the pub closed the next night he decided to rob it. He climbed over the wall and got into the pub through the window. One inside looking about, a woman aged about 60 came in. She screamed, so he put his hand around her throat and told her to keep quiet. He continued that if she... that... She then went quiet. He thought she'd fainted, so he left her lying on the floor. He found a lot of money, mostly five-pound notes in bundles. He opened some drawers and cupboards and took some loose cash. He said that he did not mean to kill her. The next day, Lowens was taken to Portsmouth by Detective Inspector Stanley Lamport of the Portsmouth City Police Force and Detective Sergeant Aikens. Lowens told Lamport that when Rose had fallen to the floor, he'd grabbed her neck to stop her screaming. He thought that she'd fainted. But she'd looked so awful that he took a piece of cloth from the bed and covered her face. He asked if she had had a bad heart. He told Lamport that he would tell them all about it at Portsmouth, but he would have a sleep during the journey whilst they got there. While Lowens was being held at Portsmouth Police Station, he made a further statement to the one he made in London. When he finished the statement, Lowens claimed that he was feeling better now. His statement was being dictated as he told his story. He refused to read it, so Lamport slowly read it back to him, and Lowens said, Yes, that's right. Then he asked to make a further statement. He couldn't remember the name of the pub, but he gave the address as Commercial Road. He said that the date was the 24th of November 1943, and he continued with the same story he had already told the police, adding a few extra details. Lowens claimed that there was a motor car waiting outside in the street for him when he finished the job although he's not prepared to say who was in the car. They drove straight back to London. Although he did not count the money, he thought there was about £450 in £5 notes. When they arrived in London, he claimed he gave £50 to a young lady, and the rest he kept in a suitcase. Lawrence claimed that he had heard that the woman at the pub that he'd robbed, Rose Robinson, had died, and as a result he'd been drinking heavily, and he'd been unable to sleep. He told the young woman, who he was not prepared to name, that if he was arrested, that she should go away with the money in the case. Although there was probably no woman involved. This statement was taken by Detective Inspector Lamport and witnessed by Detective Sergeant Aitken at Fratton Police Station on Wednesday the 22nd of December. When the police searched Lowen's background, they found he had made admissions of guilt in the past including that of murder, none of which he had committed. Lowens was proving to be a confusing and complex character. 
He was certainly untrustworthy, as he seemed to mix truths with untruths while telling a story. I would suspect he was something of a fantasist. He had been released from prison on the 15th of October 1943 and was employed briefly in a mill near Halifax in Yorkshire. He then travelled to London on the 27th of November where he found employment at the Royal Hospital Chelsea. But that employment only lasted for a day. On the 5th of January 1944, Lowens went before court. He asked to speak to Chief Constable. Lowens said that if he was taken to London, he would take him to the house where there was a suitcase with some money he'd stolen from the John Barleycorn pub. And then he could take him to the cafe where he would point out the other man who went to Portsmouth with him to do the job. Lowens was taken from Winchester Police Station on the 7th of January to a cafe at Waterloo Road. But after spending some time there, Lowens said it didn't look like the man was going to turn up. He said he may be in the pub next door, which was called the Hero of Waterloo. They waited there half an hour, but no one turned up. They then went to a house at Clapham Common to get the suitcase, but there was nothing there, so Lowens was taken back to Winchester Jail. The police then discovered a long list of convictions that made up Lowens' criminal record. Assuming that Lowens was born in 1896, his first conviction was when he was aged 17 at Huddersfield, his hometown in Yorkshire, during November 1913, for stealing. During World War I, he was in and out of prison for stealing. His first record for violence was during, the 1920, was during 1920, and his first conviction for housebreaking was in 1929. His last jail term was during October 1941, when he was sentenced for three years at Preston for housebreaking and larceny. Another 13 offences were taken into consideration. Lowndes was released from that uh, sentence on the 15th of October 1943. During the previous 30 years, he'd been in and out of prison 16 times. There were no buttons on Lowndes' coat which could be matched with the one found on the windowsill at the John Barleycorn pub. It was thought that Lowndes had removed the other buttons when he discovered that he had lost them during the night of the murder. His clothing was sent for forensic examination at the police labs. They found a few clues, hemp fibres that possibly came from the rugs at the John Barleycorn pub. These were found in his trouser turn-ups. There were some faint bloodstains on the cuff of his jacket and a feather that may have come from the eider-down. They also matched up the thread from the button found at the scene of the crime to the threads on Lowen's jacket. In January 1944, plaster casts of Lowen's right hand were sent to Keith Simpson. Lowen's hand was badly deformed. He had lost the fingers on his right hand because of an accident at, Bri at a brickworks when he was just 15 years of age. He caught his hand in some machinery. I put a photograph on the Facebook site and Instagram site of this. Simpson confirmed that the hand was able to have caused strangulation as described. The stumps of the index, middle and little finger were sufficiently long enough and capable of the stretch necessary to grip a throat. 
Howard Lowens was being held at Brixton Prison and was examined by the medical officer, who concluded that, in his words, although Lowens was in his opinion below average intelligence, he had a natural cunning and was quick to exploit any situation to his own advantage. He seemed to care little for personalities or general knowledge, but on matters concerning himself or his immediate interests, he's alert and will anticipate questions and where they are leading. He's not lost for an answer and will reply erratically or in such a manner that he may lead away from the point. He was considered not mentally uh, defective and was considered fit to stand trial. The trial was at Winchester during March 1944. Lowen was pleading not guilty, claiming that the statements that he had made were invented by the police and his knowledge of the murder came from reading details in the News of the World newspaper. During the course of the trial, Keith Simpson, the pathologist, who was a key witness, he told in his memoirs how the defence barrister, John Maud, tried to catch him out with questions about muscles in fingers. As stated in Gray's Autonomy, the book doctors used to help understand the human body. Simpson was able to argue that the edition that the barrister was quoting from, the 28th edition, was not the latest edition, so he was unable to he was able to get the trial adjourned for a day, which gave him a chance to be fully prepared for detailed questioning on the subject. The defence barrister wanted to argue that Lowens was incapable of strangling anyone with his right hand. The defence were able to find four witnesses that were found by a private detective agency employed by the defence, who said that Lowens had spent the night of the murder at Warren Street Underground Station that was being used as an air raid shelter. Lowens was difficult to conf- uh, was difficult to confuse owing to his deformed right hand. The witnesses were re- reliable. There was James Rycroft, a railway worker, William Bull, another rail worker, that was certain that it was on the night of the 28th, 29th of November, as that was the only time that Bull had worked at Warren Street. Edith Costas recalled that Lawrence had offered to comfort her crying baby and they talked until about 12.20am and she had woken him at 5.45am and another woman, Edith Hatcher, had loaned him a pillow. As it was pointed out at the time, Lawrence had made a full confession but, was, but he also had an alibi for the time of the killing. The jury could not decide on the guilt of Lowens, and so a retrial was ordered. The next trial took place at the Old Bailey two weeks later. By this time the police had gathered new evidence against Lowens, but the judge refused to allow it, only allowing evidence that was used in the original trial. For example, the police had conducted tests to prove it was possible to be at Warren Street shelter and slip away to drive to Portsmouth. Portsmouth was 70 miles away from Warren Street in London, where Lowens had been seen. Police proved that it was possible to have driven there and back within five and a bit hours and still have time to break into the pub and kill Rose. Detectives had experimented and left Warren Street at 11.50pm. They drove to Portsmouth, arriving at the John Barleycorn pub at 1.57. 
They stayed in Portsmouth for a half an hour and then made the journey back, arriving at Warren Street at 4.35am. This would have negated Lowen's alibi, but as said, the judge, in his wisdom, did not allow it. So the second trial, on the 27th of March 1944, followed much the same as the first trial, although now the defence barrister had challenged Keith Simpson's evidence, arguing that it was not possible for Lowens to have strangled Mrs Robinson with his right hand. It seemed that the judge was allowing new evidence to be introduced by the defence, as Bernard Spilsbury, the famous pathologist, was now a defence witness. As Simpson pointed out, Spilsbury had not seen the dead body, he had not made an autopsy, or even contacted Keith Simpson, which I thought would have been a professional courtesy to inspect the scientific and medical evidence. Spilsbury apparently bases evidence that Lowens could not have committed the murder by testing his grip when shaking Lowens' hand while he was on remand at Brixton Jail. The defence had organised for Spilsbury to meet with Lowens at the jail. As Simpson said, it can be imagined how Lowens performed by giving a weak handshake to convince Spilsbury there was no strength in that right hand and that he was incapable of murdering with it. Spilsbury could testify that he had, been, that he had personally examined Lowens' hand. Spilsbury did not concede that the accident had happened, did concede that the accident happened so many years before that Lowens had learned to adapt and use his damaged hand. However, the defence argued that Simpson had based his decision by relying on plaster casts and photographs. Spilsbury was very much on decline at the time and has since been accused of being so sure of his evidence that innocent people had been hung on the strength of it, as his word and reputation still carried so much influence. Spilsbury's positive evidence, given in court, had doubtless led to conviction at trials that would have ended with sufficient doubt for acquittal. As Simpson said, the magic of Spilsby's reputation was too much for the jury and Lowens was acquitted. Between them, the judge, Justice Castles, and Spilsbury had allowed a dangerous per person to escape justice. Not that they are to be blamed, it's the legal system that sets such rules. There is a brief mention of the Lowens case in the biography of Spilsbury by Brown and Tullett. In their biography of him, where they say that Lowens' fingers were so useless on his right hand, they were floppy and could be bent in any direction. This was not true. Lowens was not able to enjoy his freedom, as he was re-arrested at the courthouse for previous offences. To give some idea of Lowens' callous nature, one of the offences he was being held for was when he tied up a semi-crippled spinster aged 62 in St Albans with wire to a chair. Lowen said the silly old fool started screaming, so I hit her on the head with a torch. This resulted in a seven-year jail sentence for him. While in prison, Lowen's was nicknamed Handy, partly as a re result of his lame right hand, which did not seem to hinder him too much. Lowen's was again in and out of prison, and was virtually forgotten about until a newspaper article in 1963. The Sunday People newspaper were publishing extracts from a book written by J.D. Caswell in 1960, the well-known barrister who was telling his story. 
Joshua Caswell first coming into the public eye when he was known for prosecuting the shipping company Cunard for compensation for relatives of victims after the Titanic sinking. Caswell had prosecuted Lowens at both of his trials and made the fair point that Lowens had been lucky to be acquitted of the murder of the John Barleycorn at the John, John Barleycorn pub. In an article called The Case of Confession and the Cast Iron Alibi, Caswell pointed out that the confession, damning clues and highly incriminating statements all pointed to Lowens unmistakably as, as the killer. Lowens was serving ten years in West London's Wormwood Scrubs prison for breaking and entering. Lowens was shown the article and it was mentioned there may be a tiny sum to be made from a libel claim. So he brought a civil action against the Sunday People newspaper for defamation of character. It seems that Lowens, who was an old lag who had ridden his luck in the past, should have kept quiet. However, he insisted on bringing the case, which meant that he now had to prove his case in court. Spilsbury had died, committed suicide, or died in 1947. His alibi witnesses, those that could be traced from 1943 had forgotten the incident. The original trial notes had been burnt in a fire. However, Keith Simpson still had his post-mortem report. At the trial, Lowens came under cross-examination. He was now aged 67 and had stomach cancer. He did not convince in court. Caswell's defence took an interesting approach, arguing that the facts in the newspaper article were true and the article did not explicitly say Lowens was guilty, leaving its reasons, readers free to draw their own conclusions. What went against Lowens was his long criminal record. He had spent 47 of his 66 years in prison. Also his history of persistent lying, and the fact that he had tried to settle for an out-of-court settlement before the trial. Lowens would never have made a credible witness in court, for any other case, and it was no great surprise when he had lost his case. This all proved an embarrassment for the British legal system. Lowndes was deemed guilty by murder by a jury, yet this was a libel case, not a retrial, so he walked away without a conviction. Although not as a free man, the alleged strangler went back to Wormwood Scrubs to complete his sentence. His attempts to force damages out of the newspaper had dismally failed. The Solicitor's Journal, a legal magazine, wrote that Lowens had been thrice been tried for murder, had been finally adjudged guilty, that he had been cleared of previously after a civil action brought by the plaintiff. They seemed to enjoy the unusual case. Lowens had got away with the crime and could not be tried again due to double jeopardy. The next year, 1964, Lowens returned to the people newspaper offices. He knew he did not have long to live as a result of his stomach cancer. He told the newspaper he wanted to give them a confession so they could publish it next Sunday, which they did. In his words, Lowen said, I did it just like they said. I was down in that pub in Portsmouth once and I heard how she kept the money under the bed. I was sitting in an air raid shelter when I decided to go down and get the money. I stole a jeep. The roads were deserted. The war, you know. 
I got in the place, and the back stairs creaked. That's what woke her up. I saw her sitting in bed, holding the money bags. I grabbed for them, and in the struggle I put my right hand across her neck. She went out fast. Then he explained why, three trials and twenty years later, he was owning up to it. He said, They told me I'm going to die of cancer. I just want to get it off my chest before I meet my maker. Lowen said that he realised that nobody had missed him at Warren Street Station on the night of Rose's murder. He realised then that he had an unshakable alibi. Lowen's received his last prison sentence in late 1963. Three years jail for theft at Hertfordshire Quarter Sessions. Lowen's tried to appeal against, uh, or tried to appeal for an early release due to his cancer. As he said, it would be his last Christmas. He had spent the previous 34 Christmases in prison. It was denied, and he was proved correct. It was his last Christmas. He died within months at Pentonville Prison. Well, so that concludes another case. Sorry I've been a bit late posting this uh, podcast. The last one was on the 3rd of uh, the third of May. Today is the 23rd of May, so it's been almost three weeks. I've had one of those summer colds, and I've been working on some uh, other projects. Anyhow, I will try to be more regular with my next uh, case, which will be a paranormal one. And until then, I'd like to say thank you all for listening downloading and uh, thank you for damselfly for providing the background music and until next time i'll say goodbye Thank you.
Thank you.